Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game. I'm Kevin Day and he is Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. Um, Kieran, normally I try to do a little um, witty, topical comment at the top of the show, but we're recording this on Wednesday evening and the news of Maradona's death came through about an hour ago, so it doesn't feel appropriate. Um, my favourite fo- football photograph ever is the one of him surrounded by nine Belgian players, and I think... If anybody ever doubts the impact that one footballer can have on a city, they just need to go to Naples, which still to this day is pretty much a giant shrine to the memory of Diego Maradona. Yes, I mean, he's the only player I've ever seen in football that has come close to winning a World Cup single-handed and to win uh, a major league single-handed as he did in Naples. Uh, an absolutely in- incredible footballer. And, and I think yeah, that's what you have to assess him on first and foremost. I-, I owe him a lot because I was doing my final accounting exams in 1986 and when he knocked England out of the World Cup, I'd, I'd been watching all the football, not doing any revision before then. Uh, I, I went back to doing a bit of work and then qualified as an accountant three weeks later on the back of that. So uh, I, I do owe him a, a wee bit of thanks. But a, as a footballer, I, I've never seen anybody of, of his talent. Do you know what, Kieran? I was I was wondering today when news came through whether you had any sort of relationship with Diego Maradona, just casually. And it, it turns out that tribute is probably the one that he would like the most. <laughs> well, he, he, Indirect, he, Indirectly, he's responsible for you being an accountant. <laughs> That's right. He he was he was a fantastic, uh, fantastically talented individual. He, we know we all know that he had flaws. He he was one of South America's greatest exports, and mm. he unfortunately had a bit of a problem with another of South yeah. America's most famous exports as well. That's a, a very elegant way of putting it. Now, Kieran, later in the show, we will hear from Billy Taylor, who is the communications chief at Millwall. Uh, and if you listen hard enough, you can just hear producer Guy laughing in the background at me being in a Millwall Brighton sandwich. Um, <laughs> uh, but it, it's Newsday, Kieran, and boy, have we got news for you. And, and the, the first story is... Um, about another small footballer whose passing probably won't be as mourned nearly half as much as Diego Maradona because Gordon Taylor has announced that he will no longer be head of the PFA. Is this is this unexpected and will the PFA save a lot of money by not paying his successor anywhere near as much? Uh, well, the, Gordon Taylor did commission or his, his body commissioned a report into the governance of the PFA. I believe that now is now complete, that... that, that uh, that investigation is complete. Um, he will go down in memory as a guy who, at the age of 75, was trousering £2 million a year for being a, uh, a union leader. And I think that will that will taint the perception of him. Uh, in terms of what he did for his members, all he had to do was that when, when the initial Sky TV deals were signed with the Premier League, uh, the... The, the PFA said, well, we want a percentage of that. And the initial deals were worth, you know, 40 or 50 million pounds. They're now worth 5 billion. And when, when, the, when the Premier League said, well, any, any chance of reducing the percentage that goes to the, uh, the PFA, Gordon would simply say, no, we've, we've got a contract, we've got an agreement. And if you don't like it, our members will, we will ballot for strike action. So 
he he did look after the members. It, okay, it, it wasn't a huge job that he had to do in in terms of those negotiations. Um, did he stay on too long? I, I think there, there there are those people that will say that you can understand that. Perhaps he didn't move with the times. Uh, the PFA does an awful lot of good work, yeah. Uh, but you know, and that that shouldn't be forgotten. You know, I've I've got the list of all the the activities that they fund. I've taught. Uh, footballers and retired footballers whose courses have been paid for by the PFA. So, uh, yeah, there, there's plenty of good people there. There's plenty of good work. Gordon Taylor has certainly not helped himself at times. And uh, unfortunately, I think he'll be remembered for the wrong reasons rather than the positive things that he did. Uh, again, you know, a person with a with a, with with flaws, mm. uh, you know, and perhaps he he hung on to power for too long, but but we 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 see that in many aspects of people at the top of football. There's too many uh, old guys in charge. Yeah, let's let's face it, kid. In 15 years' time, people will be saying that about this podcast. It's like, come on, boys, really, you, you should have had that. And well done for using the word trousering as well, because we know we know we know that guy listens half-heartedly to this before he edits it and with his leaning back on his chair, fanning himself with banknotes. But as soon as you heard that word trousering, he would have sat up and gone, do I need to phone the lawyer for this? Um, and just as another little bit of insight into this podcast and how Kieran's mind works, I'm sure he won't mind. I could ask him. He's, he's, he's literally on the other end of a Zoom call. Kieran, you won't mind me saying that you your WhatsApp, you were genuinely, genuinely excited to tell me that the official receivers report into Macclesfield had just appeared in your inbox last night. It's like, got a message because it's got, who's this texting me at this time of night? It's Kieran. Oh, he's got the Macclesfield official receivers report. So is this, this feels like the, the end of the, the underlining, the final T has been crossed and I has been dotted now in this sad story, is it? Yes, yes. You know, the Mac- Macclesfield Town Football Club Limited is is no more. Uh, the official receiver's job was to to liquidate all of the assets. The good thing was that the the uh, the, the ground itself was was sold for, for I think it was three hundred thousand um, pounds to the the new the Phoenix Club. Um, and uh, as we know, Robbie Savage is involved with that. He's taking on the the coaching. And I think I've seen Robbie Savage on the TV on on a few occasions uh, in, in the last couple of days, and he's conducted himself superbly. You know for Again, he's a pantomime villain, but as, as somebody that's, that's had the pleasure to, I, because I used to, you know, obviously I was living in Manchester, I'd often catch the train back from Brighton home games and he'd be on them as well because he was coming out of the BT studios. So he was always uh, very engaging, uh, very funny, uh, and he's he's a lot smarter than people give him credit for. So, uh, yeah, Macclesfield is no more. The, the, the creditors were substantial they, they will be getting some money perhaps you know 20 pence in the pound uh ultimately a, a combination of an owner who who will i think we will certainly will get nominated for our top 10 wrong uh, of, of 2020 uh and the the efl death of a thousand cuts approach in in terms of getting rid of macclesfield from the efl that didn't help the club either but i think macclesfield town were going to go regardless of, of whether they'd stayed in the league or not. Uh, and you were excited by that appealing, appealing, uh, appearing in your inbox. And I was genuinely excited at the news that fans will be allowed into grounds in some areas of England, depending on which tier they are in, which is 
very, very good news, Kieran, but very, very short notice as well, wasn't it, to, to arrange this for some clubs. And, and we will talk about this specifically, what it means for Millwall when we when we chat to Billy later on. But this, this is good news, but it's, it is very quick, isn't it? It, it, it is. Um, clubs from the 2nd of December will be available, will be allowed if they are in Tier 1 to have a maximum of the lower of 4,000 fans or 50% of their capacity. Yeah. So that, that does seem a little bit incongruous that you, you can have, you know, Spurs' Spurs's capacity 62,000, we've got Old Trafford 76 and so on. So, you know, to have 4,000 fans, or if you're in Tier 2, it drops to 2,000. Yeah. And if you're in Tier 3, none at all. People are going to be rattling around, and I've got to be honest, Premier League clubs will be losing money from from having that because by the time you you open up the turnstiles, employ the stewards, uh, go through your your COVID protocols and compliance procedures, um, the, the money from having you know two thousand people turning up paying an average of let's say twenty five quid a pop by the time you take out VAT, um, you know, th- that's not a lot of uh, money being generated. It's Far better, however, for the clubs in League One and League Two, because those clubs are more dependent upon matchday income to begin with. Um, the Premier League clubs will go along with it because they see this as a stepping stone that if uh, if, if things work out and you know, clearly the, the speed at which the adoption and the availability of the vaccine is, is crucial here to, to football clubs, um, that 4,000 could hopefully be doubled and then doubled again um, as, as we process through the season. And uh, it, it, it has taken everybody by surprise. Uh, you know, I, I was one of those people that thought, oh, I'm just going to write off 2020, 2021. Mm. Can't, uh, can't see any improvements. But the, the vaccine news over the course of the last seven days has been um, uh, over, you know, uh, totally positive. Um, and we, we've got to, to you know, celebrate on the back of that. Yeah. Uh, my guess would be, as most people are reporting, that Southampton and Brighton may well be the only Premier League clubs that – will be in Tier 1. Um, the hope is that London clubs will be in Tier 2. Will there be any clubs, Kieran, who go, financially, it's just not cost-effective to open the stadium up. We won't get as much money uh, on ticket sales as we need to spend on stewarding, COVID compliance, etc., and say, no, thank you, we're not taking you up on this? Or, or, or as you hinted there, do you think all clubs will, will do this regardless of their status? I think all clubs will uh, take up the option for, for maximum ticket sales. I think players will want it. You know, pl- players, of course, football yeah, players yeah. don't don't go into that career to play in front of empty stadia. Um, so clubs will take a long term view. They will know that data will be going back as to the success. Remember, we had the pilot schemes yeah. which were run uh, by those EFL clubs in uh, in early September. Those clubs all lost money, but they were doing it for the greater good. And I think any club that operates in self-interest is, is being very, very short-sighted because if, if it's not going to open up to 2,000 fans, then how can it go to government in, in a few weeks' time and say, well, you know, the, the, the contamination rate is falling and therefore, we'll, I tell you what, we'll open for 10,000, but not yeah. for two. They'll be, they'll be laughed at. Um, and I think there'll be, there'll be an awful lot of very pissed off club owners elsewhere if anybody takes that approach. Uh, you, you were you were talking about the 
the uh, very short period in which to organize. And, and that is one of my major concerns, um, that that we, we've got many clubs in the lower leagues who have used the furlough for staff perfectly understandably, but also, and this hasn't really been reported, there's been an awful lot of redundancies as well. Yeah. So to to recruit people, to give them the right training, to allow matches to take place in, in front of 2,000 or 4,000 people by next Wednesday, I think will be a challenge. Um, there, there's another small issue in that there's lots of fixtures that are scheduled for the 1st of December, yeah. i.e. Tuesday night. Yeah. Are those going to be pushed back to the Wednesday? Uh, you can understand it from uh, a club's point of view. Uh, I'm sure the EFL will be as flexible as they can, uh, but it's... It, it's it's turning a corner. It's not the corner. It's not the end, but it's the start of the end. And uh, uh, yeah, we're all hoping. And uh, yeah, when the news came through, I was a surprised and b uh, quietly delighted. Of course, the big bun fight is going to be who's going to get those two thousand and four thousand tickets. Yeah, that's that's an issue that we raised with um, Billy at Millwall. Um, so Billy at Millwall makes him sound far less impressive than the communications director at Millwall, basically, which is what he is. Um, I w- want to talk about Scotland and COVID in a minute, but you, we're talking about the Premier League because Daniel Levy has, has basically warned, and it sounded like a warning the way he said it, that if if Spurs can't get the stadium full by the end of the season, i.e. they want 62,000 people back, because he says if that doesn't happen, the club will lose £150 million which seems like an, an enormous amount of money, but it is, clearly that's what he's claiming. Uh, yeah, and I, I think his comments are uh, accurate as well. Um, Spurs mysteriously announced their, their financial results a couple of days ago. No, normally Spurs leave it to, to, to the end of March. So when, when these came out, it, it involved an, a ridiculous turnaround. Spurs went from being the, the most profitable club in the Premier League. They made a profit of £87 million in 2019 to a £68 million loss in 2020. And that was just with three months of COVID impacting upon their finances. Um, I think it's a real tragedy for Spurs because um, for the first time, they have become the the leading club in terms of generating match day income. They they used to be far behind. You think about the old White Hart Lane capacity, 34,000, 35,000. The new White Hart Lane is a creation which is designed to empty wallets. And it's very, very good at doing that. So season ticket prices are quite steep in in many of the areas of the stadium. Um, But they they overtook Manchester United despite having a a smaller capacity. And and part of the reason for that is you're charging premium prices because it's it's a new stadium you're paying a london premium and things of that nature but uh, an amazing turnaround financially and, and now sort of they got the worst of both worlds they've got this amazing stadium which they had to go and borrow um if you take a look at their results they they now owe uh sort of they've got a net debt of around about 700 million pounds they're paying 800 grand sorry 800 grand a week in interest charges on on various borrowings um so it was absolutely essential that spurs had had money coming in through the stadium which was designed to be a 365 day a year stadium yeah, in, in terms of 
hospitality, uh, chores, things of this nature, all of which were very lucrative, thought through extremely well. Uh, and like you know, so many other businesses, they've they've been impacted negatively. So Daniel Levy's comments, uh, I think are, his, his, his numbers are correct. Uh, he's had to take a pay cut. Um, he he earned seven million pounds in 2019. He he had to get by in 2020 with just under three million. So I, I think the uh, price of football GoFundMe campaign for Daniel starts today. Yeah, let's let's not forget Daniel Levy when we're talking about the victims of this terrible terrible pandemic, Kieran. Um, Palace obviously have got the distinction of being the first club to lose twice at the new White Hart Lane Stadium, which takes some doing for a stadium that's been opened about a week. Um, I, was, I still can't get over the fact that we we got searched by three different dogs. Now, I, I assume one was explosives and one was drugs, but I, no one was able to work out what the third dog was, was doing. <laughs> Basically, We think he might have been a random dog who was just taking advantage of the situation. But um, in Scotland, none of this is an option, Kieran. There's, there's going to be no football returning uh, anytime soon in Scotland by the look of things. And the SFA said this week that they are set to lose a hundred million pounds because of the pandemic, which I think probably sh- throws into sharp distinction how much Tottenham are actually worth when that one club is, is claiming to lose 50 million pounds more than the whole of Scottish football. Yes, and I think it's also a reflection of the the size of the Premier League as a brand and these incredible TV deals that have been signed and the incredible commercial deals uh, that have been signed. So, um, Scot- Scottish football is 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 brilliant in so many ways. And, and unfortunately, they really suffer as a result of COVID because Scotland has the highest proportion of revenue coming from ticket sales mm. of any of UEFA's I think, 55, 56 members. Yeah, yeah. Um, so if you, if you take a look at Rangers, 60% of Rangers' income is coming from ticket sales. That compares to the Premier League, where it's just 13%. So it, it, for, for, for fans of clubs in Scotland to, to not be able to, to see that the teams that they support is, yeah, it's bad for fans, but it's, it's hitting clubs disproportionately worse. Uh, I mean, the one good thing I've always observed about Scottish football is that there are far fewer or should that be far less? Now, far fewer uh, casino clubs, you know, the ones who who spin the roulette wheel, overspend in trying to get promotion and uh, and trophies and things of that nature. So at least that they were in a a stronger position broadly overall pre COVID compared to English clubs. Yeah, you, sorry, you, you distract me. I'm trying to th- fewer uh, fewer less. This is one something my father in law is very keen on. If it's got an S at the end, then it's fewer, isn't it? Basically. Okay. There's less snow, less snow, fewer snowflakes. I believe I may have that wrong. <laughs> but snowflakes is an S at the end. Yeah, yeah. So that's yeah. So less snow, fewer snowflakes. Okay. So fewer, fewer casino clubs is correct. Less casino clubs is, yeah. is not correct. So there you go. See, that's the takeaway people get from this podcast: financial information and and throwaway grammatical uh, things. Which I believe, by sheer coincidence, you would also get in the interview with Billy Taylor. Uh, I say I believe. I know for a fact because it, it only happened a while ago, and we had a, a similar discussion about imply and infer. Um, we really are middle aged, aren't we? Um, <laughs> extraordinary scenes. A friend of mine, uh, Kieran Dave Ricketts, who listens to this. Gloucester-based Leeds United fan, 
his his catchphrase is pretty much extraordinary scene. So I'm I'm very much enjoying being able to appropriate it and say extraordinary scenes after the Liverpool Leicester game on Sunday night when Sky chose for some reason not to show Jurgen Klopp's very angry interview where he basically spent his whole time venting his anger at the way all TV broadcasters were scheduling games. Um, he also annoyed every Palace fan by pretty much saying we might as well send Brighton the three points now with the schedule that we've got. But, I mean, it was an incredible, incredible outburst, Kieran, and he, he's got a valid point. I mean, it, it seems from what he was saying that he's not the only Premier League football manager that feels this way. No, we've we've seen uh, Pep Guardiola uh, comment similarly, uh, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, um as as well in in respect of um you know we we are recording this on Wednesday night um Liverpool have probably just about kicked off so they're going to finish the match tonight at you know 9:10 o'clock uh the players will then have to warm down they will get home midnight 1am they won't be training tomorrow you know or if the most they'll do is go in for a massage on friday they will have to travel down to to brighton for a match which has been chosen by bt sport um for the the 12:30 kickoff um and i think jürgen klopp who always looks after the interests and represents the interests of his players as individuals as human beings you know, we we see footballers as highly paid individuals as commodities um but they're not they're, they're young men they're professional athletes and therefore they they should be given sufficient recovery time uh between matches this this is a this is an ongoing issue uh, it's been exacerbated by the season starting late so practically every uh, wednesday uh, is is now tied up in terms of european fixtures or the the carabao cup um or internationals so uh, players are being expected to play twice a week. And I know some people are going to turn around and say, well, go for 100 grand a week. I'd play course, football twice a week. Um, but it's it's not playing football because, you know, the, the football that you know you and I did grow up with was blokes playing football. Now they are elite athletes. Mm. Um, sports science is important. Um, the ability to... To, to plan for the next match is important and, and things of this nature. And, and Liverpool are not being given the opportunity to do this and the same as applied for Manchester United um, and, and other clubs and so on. So there is an element of sympathy there. The, the opposite view is Sky and BT have paid a huge amount of money to, uh, to, to broadcast the matches and he who, you know, he who, Pays the piper, calls the tune, and, and they are calling the tune. Um, I, I've seen uh, one of the one of the you know, we, we do get weird things arriving in our inboxes, and, and somebody sent me. Um, I think it was somebody from the from, from the Premier League mm-hmm. um, sent me a, a copy of the uh, TV deal and how it's organised and who gets first picks, second mm-hmm. picks, third picks for each week. And that's why uh, it's been so successful at generating revenue because the deals are very attractive to the broadcasters. Are BT going to turn round and say, well, you know, we know that we get good ratings for, for Brighton versus Liverpool this weekend, but they're also Liverpool also playing on the Wednesday night. So I tell you what, instead, and I've, I've not checked the fixture. I mean, who are you playing this weekend? 
Well, that's another issue because Roy Hodgson is quietly unhappy about the fact that we played at 5.30 on Monday and are now playing at 8 o'clock on Friday against Newcastle, wherein Newcastle played their game early on Saturday, so they've had two more days rest. So it it, it isn't just uh, Klopp that's angry about this quite clearly. But just on that issue of the, the he who pays the piper calls the tune, there's a friend of the show, one of our loyal listeners is somebody who's involved in football at club level and at broadcasting level and at a very um, high level. I was going to use the word level. I was trying not to use the word level again there, Kieran, but I couldn't help myself. Um, and of course, he, he wouldn't like us to, to, to name him, but he's basically saying that Klopp's been slightly disingenuous about this because he knows that the 12.30 kickoff time is one that's most popular in the Far East, for example. And and despite losing the China deal, quite a considerable amount of money is still paid by Far Eastern countries for Premier League rights. And it's it's kind of basically saying, as you said, it, it goes with the territory and it's up to it's up to the club to manage it. And that's I yeah, I I don't I, I don't agree with that view, but I understand why why somebody involved in football and broadcasting would, would say that. We all know the rules at the start of the season. And, and the fact is, if you're the manager of Liverpool, you're going to have to expect more demands on your club than the manager of, of Crystal Palace, Brighton and Burnley are. Yes, yeah, I can understand that. Uh, you know, there have been, I think we are living in a unique season on, on so many levels. Uh, pre-season was curtailed. It was, it was very much shortened. Players didn't get a proper rest at the end of last season. And I know say, people say, well, hold on, didn't they have a break between... Uh, March and June, but they they didn't have a proper break. They were they were all training every day indoors um, under lockdown themselves. So the, the players are not at full fitness. Therefore, they are more susceptible to injury. If you pile more matches into a shorter period of time, we will see a, a, an increase in the number of injuries, and that certainly has been the case. You throw into the mix. We've also got players now contracting COVID. Uh, you know, hopefully not too many of them. But you know, as you you know from your own experience Indeed. on on you know on Monday night, and and I was you know, I was wouldn't say I was as gutted about the result as you are, uh, but you know I I, I, I I you know but I've got to be honest, Burnley are a you know relegation rival yes, of, of, of Brighton this season. So you know un, under normal circumstances, Kevin, you know I'd be you know, I'll be wanting Palace to to win as much as I'd I'd like to be in the middle of a. Uh, a Steve Dale and Anne Widdicombe sandwich, but you know it, it was, it was. Yeah, you know, I was going. Oh, come, at least, at least, at least get a point. I know. Well, don't start me on that. Really, uh, my my own theory is that we deliberately missed those chances because getting into Europe next season it's it's not worth it. That everybody will be in Europe next season when lockdown finishes. The flights flights will be so expensive. We'll wait till next season. Um, but I am going to ask Guy to clip that bit of you saying normally I want Palace to win. Um, and we're going to play that at the start of every podcast from now on, kid. <laughs> uh, and I also had the thought, <laughs> basically, when yeah, you know, they are human beings, these footballers, as you, as you say, they are they are athletes, and you can't ask them to play a game of football three or four times a week any more than you can ask you, Kieran, to do a podcast every day, you know, <laughs> or two or three. That um. The Jurgen Klopp post-match interview is is freely available on social media. Now, I, I would urge people to to watch it because, to be fair to him, he he he, he wears his heart on his sleeve, and the emotion comes out. And also, seeing Jeff Shreves or hearing Jeff Shreves being a bit baffled is 
actually very funny. But post-match interviews, Kieran, are something we probably take for granted as football fans, but they're normally quite carefully choreographed. And that was just one of the things we learned in a chat with Billy Taylor, who's Director of Communications at Millwall, uh, who, to my obvious disappointment, turned out to be a thoroughly decent and interesting chap. This episode of The Price of Football is brought to you by the AI-powered workspace Notion. What if you had access to tomorrow's tools today? In Notion, you do. It's the AI-powered workspace where any team can turn ideas into action. My career is sort of a bit like being a butterfly, and I'm always jumping from project to project. So therefore, Notion helps me from summarising meetings notes and automatically generating action items to getting answers to any question in seconds. If you can think it, you can make it. And Notion is for everyone, whether you're a Fortune 500 company or a freelance football finance lecturer. You can try Notion for free when you go to notion.com slash price of football. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash price of football and start turning ideas into action. That's notion.com slash price of football. Hi, I'm Steve Lamack, and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insight, Stuart Dredge, on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode, we discuss the very latest goings-on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry, or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works, or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. Billy, thank you for joining us on The Price of Football. I believe you are one of football's youngest communications directors. Tell us how you came into that role at Millwall. Uh, thank you for having me, guys, um, and thanks for that. I'm not sure how accurate that is, but I'll, I'll take it nonetheless. Um, now, I, I've been um, at Millwall pretty much the entirety of my um, proper career mm. um, up, up to this point. I uh, did a degree in marketing uh, at Bournemouth University, that was a sandwich course. So I did a year in industry at Dagenham, um, which was actually a, a bit more journalistic than it was marketing, and that just kind of gave me an, a, a sort of in into football. Uh, and then managed to get the job at uh, Millwall as program editor uh, when I came out of uni. And then um, I've tried to work as hard as I could since then, and um, I find myself in the position that I'm in now. Yeah, I, I used to do a column for the Palace programme and I had some very interesting discussions with the editor of the programme, mainly along the lines of, why can't I say that? <laughs> yeah, it was um, that was a good time and that, and that was a, a good introduction because um, it was part of it. That was at the start really of the, the, the digital and social media boom. So initially I covered the programme and then kind of gradually had to take on the, the social media platforms, Facebook and Twitter as they really launched um and since then it's just been it's been kind of just it's almost like we've got a different platform every six months to try and integrate into what we're doing mm. and now we try very hard to be positive here in the price of football billy so uh, I, I want to get the inevitable negative question out of the way about the pandemic and then concentrate on some of the really good things that we are doing uh for their fans and their community how, how has the, the last six months changed things for you specifically as a communications director um it's been really difficult 
uh, I think in, I think in ter- as it has been obviously at all all other clubs, but just speaking yeah. from our own experiences, <laughs> it's been a real challenge. Um, not having fans here, obviously financially has been uh, has been extremely uh, extremely difficult for for the club. Um, the the different logistical headaches that have been created by trying to get fans back in at reduced numbers um, under new regulations has, has been tough. We've had um, some good moments where we, we, we're kind of on the cusp of, of it happening and then that have it taken away and there's yeah. different headaches that's that's caused us. Um, in terms of my role, we've, we've tried to be as open as we can be with the fans throughout and that's the challenge around that has been mainly because there's been times we, we don't know the information ourselves. Yeah. Um, and, and we're, you know, we're, we're really at the behest of the government uh, or, or the, the, you know, the football's governing bodies a lot of the time. Um, and unfortunately, the reality is the, the way that this, this pandemic has played out, a lot of information has been in the public domain before it has reached us. Uh, and we can't really comment or act upon it until it reaches us officially. Uh, and that's been frustrating at times because, uh, you know, we've been ready to have fans back in here for, for a long time. Uh, going back a few months now, we uh, we kind of went back on sale with season tickets in order to build those numbers back up and also to help the club financially at, at a really imperative time. Uh, then that was taken away from us and it's kind of, you know, the comms around managing that situation because that was in the space of a couple of days, yeah. which, was, which was really, you know, particularly difficult. Um, it, we've tried to be open and, and honest with the, with the fans. Um, we've, we've tried to communicate with them regularly without being sort of overbearing and uh, and, and sort of just coming out with statements which don't really say anything, which I'm not a fan of. Um, so it's been it's been a massive learning curve from start to finish, and, and hopefully, fingers crossed, thankfully, we're coming out the other side of it. Yeah, because you Millwall as a club feel very strongly about fan engagement, I and mean, you've got a fan engagement officer, which is brilliant. And that, I guess it's very difficult to engage with fans when fans aren't allowed to be where they want to be, isn't it? Yeah, obviously everything goes online. So, um, yeah, Shona Groves as our support liaison officer has done a brilliant job in the past six to seven months. You know, we've we've had fan queries, you know, on an array of matters. Really, obviously, season ticket sales, general ticketing inquiries, yeah. refunds, streaming, streaming codes, the technical problems associated with all of those things. Uh, and it's not just shown; it's the ticketing team generally that have done a great job in, in managing those those queries, uh, which have been. Um, you know, it's thousands and thousands of people all um, invested uh, in in every decision you make, and you have to you have to respect the fact that they need the information. They, if they've got an issue, they need that sorting out. So, we've got a great team of staff here who do as mm. uh, as good a job as they possibly can do in that regard. Um, and it's it, it's been challenging. Uh, the the good news is though, Billy, fingers crossed. If London comes out of lockdown in tier two, which uh, the Mayor Sadiq Khan says he's expecting you could have 2,000 fans in the new den quite soon. And presumably managing that will be a challenge as well, particularly from your point of view, because then you've got to communicate to the other 12, 14,000 fans who'd like to be there why they can't be there. Yeah, well, the, the, the way that we've, we've gone about this is we sold um, kind of pre-lockdown uh, and for the first few weeks of the initial, this is the initial <laughs> lockdown we, we was on sale with season tickets and we sold uh, I forget the exact figures but we sold X amount we went back on sale with season tickets uh, a few months ago unfortunately we had to suspend them fairly quickly because yeah. um, the, the sort of carrot of fans coming back was taken away from us uh, so we ended up with 3,000 season ticket holders for this current campaign so our view is that those fans naturally have got absolute priority uh, and if it's 
two if it is two thousand, then obviously we've got to squeeze those three thousand into two, which is it's obviously not going to be difficult. Yeah. Um. It, so it's going to be difficult. So logistically, we've got to find a way around it, and that's kind of what we're working through at the moment. We're, we're trying to come up with different solutions for different scenarios, and and ultimately, this is this is really a pathway. We're we're hopefully starting with at least two thousand, and then we might go into tier one later down the line which means four thousand then we've got to find a way to fill a thousand more seats so um it's uh, you know after so much time with no fans it's a nice headache to have yeah trying to trying to get fans in and obviously demand is going to is going to far outweigh supply that's the problem uh and we need to find a way to uh make sure that we're able to speak to the fans that can come efficiently because we've got we you know we need to provide them with a lot of information because everything they've been used to is is going to be different when to what they come back to yeah and you're going to find a lot of local pubs i guess who are providing a full restaurant service as well just so they can they can open on match day <laughs> aren't they? Do, yeah. do you, have you have you found billy that um fans have generally been sympathetic towards the, the club's plight as i know talking to to CEOs and, and owners of other clubs. I know what football fans are like because I am one. Sometimes you can't do right for doing wrong. It's very difficult to please all the fans all the time, isn't it? It is. And I think that's that's a perfect summary. Obviously, there's been times where uh, we may have got things wrong. Uh, we've done as, uh, you know, we really have done the best job we possibly can. And I know the word unprecedented has been completely overused for the best part of this year. Um, the fans largely have been absolutely brilliant. Everything that we've done has, you know, pretty much, you know, been met with a response. Listen, the club are doing the best they can in ridiculously difficult circumstances. Uh, we appreciate what they're doing. We understand that, you know, we're not going to be completely satisfied with everything, but we understand that it's also a difficult time and they're doing all they can. Um, yeah, really, that that's been that's been good. And I think I think generally in football and maybe in society to an extent that there has been that kind of rallying together certainly in in the early part of this the pandemic and the first lockdown uh and fans have just been yeah our, our fans i can only speak really for them they've, they've been absolutely terrific towards the football club yeah just to bring kieran in here for a moment i mean psychologically kieran it's fantastic news that fans will be allowed back into the championship and but league one league two level it's it's crucial that the, these fans are allowed back now and, and it's crucial that they continue to be allowed back because the worst thing that can happen i imagine kieran is that you say to a, a club in league 2 right you can have you can have 2000 fans and then two weeks later you're saying it's not working you can't anymore very much so and i think there's there's uh, special challenges for those clubs in league 1 and 2 because they they've got to make their grounds covid compliant and, and i was talking to somebody from a from a league 1 club uh, in in the last 24 hours and he said, well, we've, we've put a lot of staff into furlough. We've had to make people redundant. And now we've got effectively a week, potentially, to do everything that's required in order to be able to host a match next Wednesday. Um, yeah. But we will do it, you know, because we will work 24-7 if we have to. Uh, but it's, it's, it's good for the fans because it gives them something to look forward to. It's actually good for the players because you don't become a professional footballer to play in an empty stadium. Um, and and from the financial perspective, clubs won't be making a lot of money. You know, I, you know Billy, Billy would probably have seen some of the sums at Millwall, but with two thousand people, by the time you've paid for the stewarding, by the time you've paid to make uh, the, the, the den, the new den, uh, COVID compliant, there's not a lot left. But it's a it's it's a step forwards because, as Billy rightly said. 2,000 can hopefully become 4,000. And then as the vaccine starts to roll out, 
we'll be looking to increase that by increments over Billy, the course come the of glorious the day the when we're all allowed back into stadia again I, I think our listeners would like to know what what match day is for you on a, on a normal match day when you've got a full new den you must be extremely because you're not just talking to to Millwall fans you're talking to media and fans all over the world aren't you I'm guessing yeah, so my my role really on match days has, has changed over the years. When, you know, when I first started, it was kind of juggling the different platform stuff we had to update over the course of the game. Um, you know, thankfully over time, I've built um, what you know what I see as a really good team uh, alongside me who would do a brilliant job in, in managing those channels. So the, these days, I kind of take on a more observational role. My focus on match days is to is to really look after media obligations of mainly the manager, but any players after the, after the game. So um, I'll, I'll watch the matches from, uh, you know, n- in normal circumstances from the tunnel. That gives me a good feel for, obviously at the moment, how Gary Rowett is feeling during the yeah. course of the game. That really helps me post-match. I think that's crucial for my role. I need to understand how the manager is feeling post-match because that dictates everything that happens from that point. Yeah, uh, I know how to uh, approach him. I know how to... Um, to discuss the game or, or any briefings or incidents with him. Um, so that, that's, you know, that's really it. And then post-match, I, I, I take Gary round and um, just go for all of his obligations. Um, we, we will, uh, you know, I'll brief him if I need to brief him on anything. Um, thankfully that's, that's not necessary all the time. And we'll have a little chat about what we think we might want to say on certain um, topics or about certain players or, or injuries or whatever's happened during the course of the game. Uh, and then once we've finished, um, we go down to his office and have a, a tiny little debrief if necessary after that. it's uh, I've, I've been at quite a lot of grounds when games are finished and I've witnessed the communications officer, press officer, whatever they're called at each club, having to guide the manager through the hierarchy of you know TV broadcasters, radio broadcasters, written press, local press. I don't think people fully understand. For a manager who's just watched his team win, lose, draw, perform brilliantly. Otherwise, they they have to do this dance, don't they, really? And, and I've seen certain managers, let's, let's use Neil Warnock as an example, because nobody will be surprised that he's who don't really want to do that, but have to do so, don't they? They've got, they really can't just turn around to the press and say, oh, lads, I'm not in the mood, girls, I'm not in the mood, I'm not doing this. And you have to guide them through it. And I, I imagine that's not always easy, is it? No, not always. Obviously, you know, results really, you know, results and performances dictate their mood after games. Most managers will be exactly the same as that. Uh, it, they have to do it as part of the job. You yeah. know, they quick, quickly become used to it. I think for new managers, it is a bit of a shock because there is so much to contend with, particularly after games when, you know, for the most part, even after wins, emotions are running high. And I think what's difficult is that the manager can do maybe up to eight interviews after a game, probably at yeah. championship level, once you've got through the radios and, and TV and then um, all the written press as well as club media. Uh, and, it, it, you know, every sentence they say is is heavily scrutinised by those who watch yeah. it or uh, watch it, hear it or read it. And I think it's quite difficult to be speaking for the best part of probably an hour um, and to say everything completely spot on as you want it. Um, that's just, you know, particularly when you're emotional. Yeah. Um, some managers are, are, are much better than others, uh, and Gary, uh, thankfully, is very, very good to work with. He's um, very astute. He knows clearly what he wants to say, how he wants to communicate. Um, you know, with the media and obviously with the fans as a consequence of that um, discussion. So, uh, I've sort of, and generally, I think throughout my time at Mill, I've been very lucky. Yeah, and it's not just the fans and the and the manager you sort of look after as well, because I think it's fair to say Millwall's community work is 
it's exemplary pretty much, isn't it? Mobile does a fantastic job in its local community, doesn't it? We really try our best, yeah. And, uh, you know, absolutely we pride ourselves on that. Um, the, the community trust has uh, undergone a little bit of a restructure in the past couple of um, years. Sean Daly's come in as, as the CEO and has done an excellent job of uh, really refocusing everything, um, you know, different strategies going on, different initiatives and projects being driven. Uh, and they, you know, clubs including ourselves talk about the you know the work of our community trust and, and quite rightly because they're very important but it's not really until you see the impact yeah. at a human level that you can really appreciate just how much of a difference it makes and I'm fortunate in that I can see that I can see um, a participant on a program and how um, the work of the trust the opportunity given to that person by the trust has changed his or her life for whatever reason and that is that is a really nice part of this job seeing that and, t- and telling that story. Yeah, as a proud Londoner, Billy, proud South Londoner, I'm always arguing that people outside the capital don't necessarily appreciate the problems that many communities have in London. Would you agree with that? Uh, yeah, possibly so. Um, I, I think that the landscape of London, um, you'll know as well as anyone, is, is changing all the time. Uh, I think certainly in, in the, the local borough surrounding the den over the past 30, 40 years has yeah. changed yeah. significantly. Um, you know, that presents different different challenges for different reasons, really. Um, kind of over um over the past few decades, what we've seen here is that our you know, our core support was based locally, which is the case I think probably at most um most clubs in, in working class areas. Yeah. Um those individuals maybe moved slightly further afield. Um you've got to still market to those people, you've got to understand how to get them to to, to games regularly despite living further out. So there's different challenges it, it presents, but I know exactly what you mean, yeah. Has social media, Billy, made your job harder or easier, would you say? Uh, that's a great question. Um, it's Kieran's, thank you. <laughs> yeah, it, it, no, it's a really good question. It's, it, it depends on the circumstance, really. I think, uh, you know, pretty much throughout my career, social media has been present. I think in the last few years, it's really, you know, it's blown up and um, I think it's, you know, for, for the most of um, society who use technology, social media is the way that they, they are predominantly consuming media. Yeah. I think even when they're at home watching TV, I don't know what you guys are like, but I'm still on my phone on social media when I'm watching TV. And I think that's the way that people like, do consume different media has changed over the years. I think it it depends on the circumstance, really. Um, post-match after a defeat, uh, I'm, to be honest, I'm not really looking at social media, but when we announce when we announce a sign in, I can't wait to look at social media. Sure, um, wh- what it's created is um, is a is a real like desperate thirst for instantaneous information all the time, um, and whether that's a, a you know news of a transfer or about an injury or, or or whatever it is, people feel that they need that information right now, and that you know. You know that has to influence what you do as a as a club. In, in the you know in previous years, um, fans would have to wait till the next day to read a paper to understand yeah. what's happened with with something at a ground or a transfer or whatever it is. But nowadays, clubs need to act quickly to satisfy that demand. Um, so definitely good and bad. Well, because I'm guessing as well, but it, it must be harder for you to control stories because they you know they they appear on Twitter or Instagram from a multitude of sources. And fans, like myself included, tend to believe anything that they're told on social media. Do you know, and it's it's like I, I find myself I can't help it. I try not to 
you know, CPFC News Now is one of the many things. And he's, he's, uh, for example, during the summer, there was on this Palace News website thing that I'm scrolling down, and it, it, it says, um, Club Insider says Palace should have sold Zahar, he's not worth the money. And I literally said, what idiot said that? And it turned out it was me they were quoting. <laughs> because I'd, on, they'd listened to a podcast, and what I'd actually said is, the, the pandemic means it's now a, a buyer's market and we won't get as much money for Wilf if we sold him as we would have done beforehand. And that turns into this story that fans believe. And I'm, I'm the same, I believe it. And that must be really hard for you because 10, 15 years ago, you would have been con- controlling a story, really. You'd have been you that released it and you could you could change the narrative of it. And you can't do that now, can you? No, it's, it's obviously increasingly difficult year after year to, to do exactly that, to, to try and control the message or the, the narrative. I think... Particularly in 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 recent seasons, the, the sort of social media boom has seen the birth of uh, the ITK, uh, those who claim to be in the know, um, and more often than not, they are absolutely not in the know. Believe me, but I think because fans are fans and um, and not just all about our fans, I think football fans generally are so desperate, as I was alluding to earlier, for that nugget of information that they're more inclined to believe someone for saying something just because they've said it. They've put their head above the parapet and they've said it but they don't know what they're talking about. And I think because there's, as I say, that first information all the time, there's there's a, lots of pressures on uh, clubs, journalists, agents to kind of get information out there. Um, and, and that's why it's, it's impossible not to secure a transfer about it leaking out yeah, on, on social media. It just, it just doesn't happen. So you have to accept that. So what we try to do here is manage it as, as best as we can. We appreciate that fans are desperate to know the latest goings on more often than not we can't tell them exactly what's going on obviously certainly not on an official basis um but we do what we can to tr- you know to, to just try and shape the message as, as best as possible which is which is challenging believe I, I, i've not come across that itk before i think that's a really good expression there's a there's a bloke who drinks in the pub that we go to before games uh whose mate knows the brother of martin kelly's driver so of yeah. course that means he knows everything that's going on at the club, and I, I and I go, well, it must be right. His mate knows the brother of Martin Kelly's driver. And it's 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 ludicrous what you will believe if you're told by somebody on social media. Now, um, on a on a more upbeat uh, note, Billy, I, I live in Norbury, and uh, there's a studio I go to quite a lot in London Bridge, and the train takes me past your ground, but it could be taking me past a much bigger stadium in future because you've had a very long running saga around the the freehold ownership of your, the land that the ground's on, that's been resolved recently, has it? And you've got plans for a, a really swanky new stadium, haven't you? Yeah, so this has been a long-running um, issue um, which precedes my time at the club. Um, it's dating back, I think, 15, well, 14, 15 years or so now. Um, came to a head a couple of years ago um, with a, a little bit of dispute with, a, with the council. Um, fans were terrific in helping the club. Um, essentially get what it needed to get out of that predicament. Um, we find ourselves in a better position. Obviously, COVID has sort of slowed the progress of of that. Um, but yeah, we've got what we think are really positive and exciting plans for the future of the stadium. Um, you know, we hope to be able to move those forward um, in the near rather than long-term future. Um, but it is, regardless of that, it's, it's a long-term project anyway. Um, it's, you know, with a view to us progressing on and off the pitch over the course of the next X amount of years. Um, but we, we, you know, we have ambitions and, and I think we're right to, to have ambitions because if you, if you don't, I think you, you just stand still. And I think that's no good for anyone. And, and Kieran, economically, 
yeah, the 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 uncertainty over the the future of the the land where the ground is on that 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 disappearing can only help in terms of getting investors, sponsors, uh, future plans, can't it? Indeed, uh, if you if you look at it from a club's point of view, you've got your three sources of income. Um, Millwall have got a hardcore fan base, but that that can potentially grow, and and then you can start to use these horrible words such as monetize that. You know, Billy's been inferring that there has been a change in the demographics in in terms of the the locality around Millwall. So there are new businesses there. I think they'd like to be associated with uh, yeah with with, with a, a, a an improved stadium and things of that nature. So that's going to help your commercial income, and that goes into the budget for the manager. So it can yeah, become I'm a channel. A my father-in-law here, Kieran, God rest his soul, and say Billy's been implying you infer, just so we know. <laughs> <laughs> so I, you, you'll notice, Billy, that Kieran and I have been married for far too long. Um, <laughs> finally, Billy, on the pitch, you, you've lost a little bit of momentum with three successive draws, but you're, you're very much in the promotion shake-up. You've got a progressive manager. You're playing some really good football, and it pains me to say that. Are you dreaming of that massive workload promotion to the Premier League will bring? Because you really won't know where you are work-wise, Billy. You're going to have... It's going to be brilliantly, beautifully busy, isn't it, if you do get promoted? Yeah, it would be. Um, I, I wouldn't mind whenever it comes, and hopefully it does come um, sooner rather than later. Yeah, we, we, we know that as a club in the Championship, we are, we're largely punching above our weight most seasons. But I think as a club, we need to try to change that narrative because if we if we keep believing that we're, you know, we're lucky just to be competing at this level. We're a small club in the championship. That's not really going to take us to where we want to go, which is ultimately the Premier League. We know that in, in terms of budgets, we are one of the smaller clubs, but that's not to say that we can't compete above the constraints of our own budget. And I, I think that's certainly what Gary's working towards, um, changing us from a team that scraps and scrapes in the championship to one which can compete regularly at the, the sort of upper echelons of the division. Uh, and I think we're, we're making good progress in that front. Yeah, we've um, we've drawn the last um, we've drawn the last three games. We're struggling just a little bit in front of goal um, at the moment. A couple of injuries um, to key personnel, but um, you know we, there's a really good group of players here who can grind out results. Um, you know, loads of togetherness, camaraderie in the squad, uh, and that, believe me, goes a long way to um, to being successful at this level. And, and also it makes your life easier, I would imagine. If you've got a squad that generally likes each other and gets on with each other, you, that's that's good for you, isn't it? I mean, it means you don't have to worry about players' rivalries you know, spilling out onto social media. You you know you can concentrate on other stuff, knowing that the players want to play for each other and for the manager. Yeah, absolutely right. Um, it's not always been the, the case. Going back a few years, it wasn't as, you know, nowhere near as good as, as what it is now. Um, you know, since really Neil Harris took over as manager, um, when it was four or five years ago now and, and Gary's kind of continued it um, the, the, the characters in the group um, are, are excellent um, every, every one of the players is, is a great lad um, there's no there's no bad eggs in the in the squad whatsoever and of course that helps us do our jobs um, and I think that really translates uh, not just what happens on the pitch but what happens around the training ground day to day um, the way that the players deal with staff uh, it really is an excellent club uh, to be at always has been, um, but especially at the moment um, with the way with the way things are, it's very very positive. 
Billy, it's been a pleasure talking to you. It's always good to get insight from somebody who works at a proper football club. Uh, um, and it's great. And again, if there's anything we can help you publicise in future, please let us know and we'll do so. And let's keep our fingers crossed that that 2,000 fans that's coming in soon will, will grow into 14,000 and a full house in the Premier League, mate. All the best to you. You're very kind. Thanks for having me, guys. That was... Um, I found that a really fascinating interview, Kieran. And what you know, how proud I am of, of of London and being a Londoner, especially being a South Londoner. And people don't always associate London football clubs with community, but Billy's pride in Millwall really shone through there, didn't it? Yes, yeah, he, he was superb. I thought it was a it was a fantastic ambassador for the club. Mm. Uh, he, he explains what, where they are and, and the fact that they're they're living in a changing London landscape, Absolutely, but they mustn't yeah. forget their roots. Um, and you know, as as somebody that was born in the Elephant and Castle, I'm, I was absolutely chuffed to hear him say what he said. You know, my uncle Terry would be uh, smiling in his grave listening to that. Yeah, if he's well, we're not entirely sure if he is dead or on the run yet, are we? There's still there's still <laughs> some dispute about that. Um, two other Championship clubs in the news: Kieran Middlesbrough and drumroll, Derby. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> we thought this that we're we're going to have to put a stake through the heart of this story because it just keeps coming back, doesn't it? You, just when you think it's gone, the EFL has published the appeals panel decision in relation to the row between these two clubs. Yes, um, this this was really weird. Um, for those people not familiar, uh, Derby County were charged by the EFL uh, in respect of two issues. First of all, the sale of Pride Park at £81 million. And the EFL said, well, we don't think it's worth that. Um, and it was purely, and, and, the, and the accusation effectively was purely done to make a profit to comply with financial fair play or profitability and sustainability rules, as they are now known. Um Derby successfully defended that, and they their their view um, that if you go and put a sliding roof over Pride Park, uh, all of a sudden it will become a a multifunction, multi use stadium, um, and therefore the value of eighty one million pounds was valid. Well, that that was successfully uh, defended, um, and at the same time. Middlesbrough owner Steve Gibson, he was absolutely livid that, that, in his view, Derby County had got away with selling the stadium in the first place, yeah. and this transaction shouldn't have gone through. So he was trying to claim uh, that Middlesbrough were entitled to compensation uh, because in the year that this transaction w- went through, when when potentially Derby could have had a points deduction, mm. Middlesbrough missed out on a playoff place. And he said, well, if we'd been successful in the playoffs, we would have got through to the Premier League. So therefore, it's cost us, you know, millions and millions. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, there's a lot of, lot of conjecture there. Um, so this went to Sports Resolutions, who are the sort of the ACAS of football disputes domestically. And they found in fa- favour of the EFL and Derby in the sense that Middlesbrough, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't their fight to uh, to get involved with, yeah. and, and therefore to, to claim that they were entitled to compensation, uh, that was an invalid claim. I mean, it's it's a bit awkward because it's it's very much a case of the enemy of my enemy is my friend. On this particular scenario, the EFL and Derby 
were both singing from the same hymn sheet. The EFL said, well, you know, we lost in terms of the uh, the value of the stadium. So, you know, we, we've just got to accept it. And therefore, you should do that to Middlesbrough. And Steve Gibson going, well, I, I still don't believe that it's worth £81 million. And, you know, he's, he's I don't know who's going to support him on that. At the same time, the EFL are appealing another one of the verdicts where Derby was successful in respect of our good friend amortization and the the unique way in in which Derby uh, do their calculations uh, and you, there's nothing wrong with being slightly different this one purely coincidentally reduced Derby's losses by 30 million pounds in the three seasons of the assessment period which just so happened to ensure that they complied with the profitability and sustainability limits and therefore avoided a points deduction. So we've got on the one hand the EFL effectively being on the same side of Derby. At the same time, they're trying to to uh, get them. Uh, you know, they're, they're charging Derby, and to make matters very intriguing, as we say, we're recording this on Wednesday night. Who are Middlesbrough playing at home tonight at? Uh, uh, in the northeast, they're playing Derby County. So you can imagine the levels of frost in the uh, in the director's box as we speak. Yeah, luckily it's a it's a quite a big stadium, and they they have to social distance. I think they might be socially distancing quite a bit further than they need to. Um, and well done for saying purely coincidentally there, Kieran, as well. I'm sure our lawyer will be entirely happy with that. He'll he'll nod that through. That should be fine legally. Purely coincidentally, he said that, didn't he? Image image rights, Kieran. Image rights is a subject we've we've often discussed um, on this show, um, particularly as a way for players to be paid outside their wages. But Zlatan Ibrahimovic this week has called for an investigation into the game FIFA 21, alleging that EA Sports and I quote used his name and his face without permission. Now I understand, Kieran, that your face has occasionally been used without permission. But um, <laughs> is is Latan going to earn money out of this? Do you think has he got a case? Um, well, this this uh, th- this case is intriguing, um, and and I think we did actually discuss it briefly in August. Mm. Um, it is to do with with image rights. Um, apparently, there's an organisation called FIFPRO, F I F P R O, which is sort of the the union of players unions. It represents Ooh, all yeah, of the, you know, yeah, the PFA yeah. and all of the other unions yeah. around the world. Um, and they appear to have sold um, players likenesses to EA sports and some other organizations to, to allow the, the players to appear in uh uh, in in uh, FIFA 21 with a likeness, with the right name on the back of the shirt and so on. Because if you've ever played some other, and, and you know, I'm sure people re- remember some of the old school uh, video games where uh, you would have players' names like Marabona or something <laughs> like that. You know, yeah, yeah. Very, very, very slightly different. You're going, mm. well, he, he, he's wearing a blue and white stripe with a number 10 <laughs> yeah. on it and he's got curly hair. Yeah. But, oh, no, 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 that, that name is nothing. So they, they always used to be slightly different. But now, uh, because of the, the level of competition between uh, EA Sports, who, who own FIFA 21, and um, uh, Konami, who own Pro Evolution Soccer, uh, you know, they're always trying to get one up on each other. And of course, then you've got the likes of Sports Interactive, who own uh, Football Manager, which uh, you know, Football Manager 21 has just come out. That's a, that's a plug there. If anybody from Sports Interactive is listening and wants to send me a game, uh, to, for, purely for inspection purposes, you You've got my address, gang. Um, so uh, 
do, does Zlatan Ibrahimovic have have a have a case here? Um, my understanding is that it's it's remote. I, I believe that Gareth Bale has has piled into this as well. Um, but uh, Tom, our our friend at the Football Law, mm. uh, I've seen his posts today on Twitter, and he seems to think that because FIFA Pro have been acting on behalf of players' unions, it will be a, a, a challenge for uh, Ibrahimovic to to win this. You know, it's not that Zlatan needs the money. I think it's just a point of pride. Presumably, he didn't quite like the likeness. Um, and therefore, he's seen his ass with regards to this, and he's he's trying to get a few quid out of it. Yeah, do you know what the world needs, Kieran? It, it, it needs a game called Football Accountant Twenty One, <laughs> and where where you could make a lot of money by you and Swiss Ramble. You, your face would be on the front of the box. Uh, I don't know if anyone knows what Swiss Ramble looks like, but his mistakes. Well, somehow he'd end up getting money out of it, Kieran, and we wouldn't. Essentially, is what I'm saying. Um, now, this is a question, a, a piece of news that guy sent through that. Slightly baffled me, and you know, Kieran, my theory of uh, professional laziness, because I like to be surprised by your answer as as much as our listeners are. That the value of some MLS franchises in the US has been increasing astronomically, and I've been I've been struggling, struggling, and scratching my head to to work out what that reason might be. So I'm looking forward to you elaborating. Um, well, yeah, in in the MLS, uh, they they the MLS has something called an expansion fee, i.e. If you want to buy uh, a franchise for a new football club, um, you're going to have to go and pay money. Now, the cost of that has gone up from, I think, from $100 million to $200 million just to buy in. Uh, so remember we were talking about uh, Rob Reynolds and, and McElhenney uh, buying Wrexham mm. for $2 million quid. Well, we said at the time... Yeah, that seems that seems a bit weird. If it's going to cost you two hundred million quid to buy a football club in in the USA, you, you can see the appeal of a club such as Wrexham. Mm. But if if you take a look at American football, you, you've got clubs such as the Seattle Sounders. You know, they they are selling out their stadium. They're getting attendances of forty thousand a week. Okay. There is there is a a wage cap operating in the MLS. Um, there is no relegation, so you're, you've got guaranteed revenues coming in, and the value of the TV deals pre-COVID, you know, we don't know what's going to happen post-COVID in, in anywhere, was ticking up. So um, Vincent Tan, who some people might to remember from uh, Cardiff City, he was, was the owner there, um, he owned 20% of Los Angeles FC, uh, and he sold that for $140 million, wow. which valued that club at $700 million. You think, well, hold on, $700 million, yeah, that's what, fair, $550 million quid. That's almost twice what Mike Ashley's trying to get mm. for Newcastle United, who have got 50,000 fans turning up every week. They're playing in the Premier League with the world's biggest TV deals. So, yeah, American investors seem to think there's – um, there's a lot of upward potential, and, and that's what you're doing when you when you're buying a, a franchise. You're not you don't care about what's happened in the last five years. You say, what do we think is going to happen in in the short to medium term future? And that's why I'm prepared to pay these huge amounts. And our final story, Kieran, the president of the Confederation of African Football is facing an ethics investigation. Well, yeah, I think since this story broke, things have accelerated a wee bit. Mm. Um, Ahmed Ahmed, who is the uh, the uh, Madagascan 
football uh, administrator who became head of the CAF. He is now uh, being given a five-year suspension from football from FIFA. Oh, okay. Now he, so he's he in the last hour he's put in an appeal uh, to say, you know, I'm uh, I'm squeaky clean. Um, and looking at the looking at the charge sheet, which uh, which would even make uh, Greg Clark look like a choir boy here, <laughs> um, it's uh, unusual contracts with sports equipment uh, com- uh, companies, uh, allegation of bribes. Um, the use of uh, Confederation for African Football funds for personal use and sexual harassment. Oh. So yeah, that that's yeah that that's a pretty pretty long rap sheet. Um, so FIFA seem very confident. They've done an investigation. Uh, if these charges are correct, then you know, I think a five year uh, a five year suspension from football is actually very mild. Mm. It seems to be. Um, don't forget, I was going to say don't forget, Kieran, but you know this. Don't forget, uh, listeners, if you'd like to support The Price of Football, you can by visiting supported.acast.com forward slash price of football or just click the link if you're listening in the Acast app. Uh, I would just like to thank everyone who supported us so far, including Jasper Vestergaard, JS, Canary Carolyn, Pepe Loyola, Daniel Kay, Sutton Sadler, Liam Reynolds and the Mike, and special thanks to Martin Searle for his donation and tweets summarising every show, which always make me laugh. Um, yes. And Martin Martin is a doctor and a Palace fan uh, who drinks in the Porson's Arms before games, and we are currently on the Porson's Arms WhatsApp group trying to negotiate a bulk deal for him to vaccinate us all. Because we we feel that if anybody can get us vaccinated before the rest of the world, Martin Searle can. Don't forget, our next pod will be, of course, on Monday. And that's our questions pod. If you have any questions for us about any aspect of football and finance, please get in touch with us. Questions at priceoffootball.com. And for once, I'm going to say this. Stay safe, everybody. We look forward to seeing you next time. And thank you very much, folks, for all the re- all the reviews. If you do like the show, press that uh, press that subscription button on on the Apple icon. It, it does make a difference. We're not quite sure if you can give us a five star review if you're enjoying what we're doing. Uh, that's fantastic. It doesn't matter what you say. Uh, you, you can say you would rather it was presented by the Nolan Sisters and Frankie Boyle. It makes no difference to where we are. Uh, in terms of of our egos, but it does make a difference to to produce a guy when he's trying to sell the show to others, uh, trying to persuade guests to come on. Uh, and you know, we, we were absolutely made up with uh, with Billy today. He was an absolute star. Uh, Millwall fans, you should be really proud to have such a, a a good guy working at your club. The price of football. Bye, son, for the